Welcome to the Nature Photography Podcast. Hi, I'm Terry Vanderheiden, and today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're going to take you on a little journey, kind of a little verbal puzzle for you to figure out along the way, and also an opportunity to learn some captivating information about landscape photography. All that coming up on the Nature Photography Podcast. The year was 1918. The world was battling a cruel influenza pandemic known at the time as the Spanish flu. While we're all aware of how the most recent COVID-19 pandemic took its toll on elderly and the health compromised, the Spanish flu was far less discerning and it killed many healthy adults ranged age 20 to 40. Avoiding this disease was everyone's first line of defense. So the cleaning of surfaces and the act of just simply getting away from people was a popular therapy. Virginia did just that. She went to live with her father, a landscape painter who owned a studio home in one of the most beautiful spots in the world. The Best Art Studio was run by the famous painter, Harry Best, that was located right next to the base of Bridal Veil Falls in Yosemite National Park. The sounds of the thunderous falls nearby were occasionally drowned out by the music that drifted out of her father's parlor. While history will show that Harry was a gifted painter who created some of the most iconic oil paintings from the early days of the Yosemite National Park, Harry was also an accomplished musician. Spending his early years traveling in a musical group, Harry finally came to the realization that music wasn't going to be his livelihood. So he and his wife, Anne, picked up and moved to Yosemite Valley to raise their daughter. The best studio was a perfect place to grow up for Virginia. Starting out as a tent, the best studio was built into a sturdy home and a studio structure. The virgin landscape of Yosemite National Park was Virginia's backyard, and this was unlike most childhoods. The studio was not only a home, but it served as a school where people would come to learn how to create the spectacular painted landscapes from her famous father. With the pandemic diminishing in 1920, Ann Best passed away, leaving Harry and Virginia to run the studio in Yosemite Valley. Much like the most recent pandemic of 2020, the national parks were a busy place for people to get away and to spend time in nature. And this is what a young man from San Francisco did. Battling the OCD effects of living through a pandemic, Easton would clean every surface before touching anything. His own battle with the Spanish flu convinced him that avoiding germs was his best line of defense. However, a return trip to Yosemite Valley, which young Easton visited years before, proved to be his cure for his obsession with his constant hand-washing. Easton's hands were indeed important to him as he was on a career path of being a concert pianist. Though he felt his hands were smaller than the average pianist, he spent many hours practicing his music. Even though as Easton spent his days hiking in the Sierras, his love for music was his main focus and he decided he needed to get in front of a piano to get some playing time in. After asking around Yosemite Valley where the nearest piano might be, a park ranger directed him to the only piano to be found for miles around, 
and that was located in the Best studio. With hat in hand, young Easton asked Harry Best if he could use his piano to practice his music and hone his technique. Harry, being a musician himself, could hardly say no. So for many afternoons after, Easton could be found at the Best studio practicing his music. It was here one day when Virginia walked in and was listening to the young pianist show off his skills that she and Easton began a relationship. This led to many more unscheduled practice sessions where Easton and Virginia spent many hours in conversation and eventually, in 1928, they married. Over time, the best studio in Yosemite Valley was moved to a spot even more spectacular, one where it sits overlooking the enormous Yosemite Falls. Now in 1936, Harry Best, the landscape painter and teacher, passed away and left his studio to Virginia to run. And she ran the art studio all the way up until 1971. Born in San Francisco back in February of 1902, Easton grew up with his most vivid memories of looking out at the smoldering landscape that was once San Francisco. The four-year-old boy at the time of the 1906 earthquake avoided serious injury during the actual earthquake. But three hours later, an aftershock threw him against the wall and broke his nose. The doctor suggested that he get his nose reset when he became an adult. But Easton didn't mind the crooked look and never did have it fixed. At age 12, his family took a trip to Yosemite and Easton was thunderstruck by the beauty. He was given a little Kodak Brownie box camera on this trip, and this started his interest in photography that would stay with him for the rest of his life. At age 17, Easton joined the Sierra Club, where he was involved with the organization for the rest of his life as well. He was even hired at the Sierra Club Visitors Facility in Yosemite Valley for the years between 1920 and 1923. Spending time in Yosemite Valley with the Sierra Club did a couple of things to enhance young Easton's life. It not only brought him to the place where he would eventually meet his wife, Virginia, but was also his love of the outdoors that became his greatest internal fire. The Kodak Brownie camera was ultimately replaced by a Deerdorf 8x10 view camera. Now, if you're not aware of the capabilities of a view camera, this was a very large camera made for the purpose of getting the highest resolution a camera could provide on film at the time. The camera is made up of a rail and two wooden frames that could independently slide on this rail. The frame on the front of the rail held the lens. This was a very tiny lens by today's standards, but back then you only essentially needed the front element, not the entire lens. The back part of the camera held an almost identical frame as what sits on the front, but the back holds an 8x10 piece of ground glass. In between these two frames is a bellows that covers the area between the frames in the complete darkness, but the flexible fabric of the bellows will allow the two frames to slide together or farther apart. To equate this to today's standards, the front frame and lens is the front element of your today lens. The bellows acts as the lens barrel as light passes through. And finally, the ground 8x10 inch piece of glass equates to today's sensors. 
The process of shooting a view camera was like this. You would set this whole unit on a very sturdy tripod as the view cameras were very heavy and large. The rail would be parallel to the ground and the rail would be also pointed at the subject. To compose, you would open your lens on the front to wide open. You would drape yourself with a black cloth so you could look through the ground glass on the back without getting any stray reflections. When you move the two frame parts either farther apart or closer together, an upside down image would be projected from the open lens to that ground glass on the back. And this image would become sharper as the distance between the front and the back sections were moved to the correct spot. Most cameras would have clamps that would allow the front and back section to move freely on the rail. When you got close to seeing the composition you were looking for on the ground glass, you would tighten the clamps and lock down the positioning of the two frames. Lastly, you would grab a magnifying glass and adjust the fine tuning of the rails with a knob that would allow you to move them back and forth in tiny increments to get perfect focus on that ground glass. Once you had the composition you wanted and you could see through the ground glass, you locked everything down. The tripod was in place, the rails locked, and sometimes weights were even added to the tripod for more stability. Lastly, you would close the lens. Now no light is being projected from the front to the back of that glass. The film used back in the 1920s was all black and white, and it was sold in sheets, and in the very early years, the sheets of film were on glass before plastic was introduced. There wasn't any high ISO films back then, so a photographer could only rely on a longer shutter speed to get the images on film. Later on, manufacturers created faster lenses, but nothing that compares to today's fast lenses. There was no in-camera exposure metering in those days, so the exposure had to be measured by a handheld exposure meter. This device, which is still available today, was used to measure the light falling on the subject, which is more accurate than today's in-camera meters that calculate the exposure from reflected light. Typically, the photographer would have to walk out into the scene and hold the meter up to the light to take the reading. Then he would add the loss of light that would, be, that would occur from the light that went through the large bellow system, and then set the shutter speed on the lens and then the aperture. The exposure was made by placing a film holder in the back of the camera, where now the film inside the holder would be in the exact position of that ground glass. That way the sharpness you achieved via the magnifying glass would be exactly on the sheet of film. With the film holder in place, the cover to the film holder was removed leaving the film to be exposed in the black box of the camera. With a cable release, the lens was fired at the selected shutter speed and the f-stop that was set. The shutter would open for the designated time. The lens was stopped down to get the proper depth of field and the exposure would be made. The photographer would then slide the cover back on the film holder and remove it from the camera. This whole process yielded one photograph. If the photographer wanted more than one piece of film exposed, similar to today's bracketing, another film holder would need to be inserted into the camera and the whole process repeated. Now this brings us back to Easton. As he explored the backcountry of Yosemite Valley, he carried his 8x10 view camera and tripod with him to create his famous landscape images. 
As you likely know by now, Easton Adams, better known as Ansel Easton Adams, gave up his music career and began photographing the nature all around him. The hallmark of his photography was that he wanted to visualize in advance how the image would look in the form of a print on the wall. This meant that Adams had to make a lot of decisions before the image was created, like with exposure. As he was calculating the exposure, Adams had to consider what he wanted the final image to look like. Knowing that he could control the contrast of an image by shortening exposure and compensating by increasing development time of his film. There were also ways to alter the chemistry of the developer to increase contrast in the final negative. Now, would a color filter over the lens change the contrast? Indeed it would, and this technique is still used today with monochrome digital cameras. This is a far cry from how simple it is to take a good photograph today, but the value of pre-visualization of an image before you start still holds true in today's world. On one of his most famous images shot in 1927, called Monolith, the face of Half Dome, Adams trudged his view camera tripod and film holders up from the valley floor to capture the mountain face close up. He decided at the time to use a red filter over the lens to make the blue sky very dark. In doing so, he had to calculate an exposure that considered the film speed, the available light, the distance the light had to travel through the large camera, the aperture or depth of field he wanted. He also calculated in the density of the red filter that he added. As he shot multiple sheets of glass negatives, he would mark the film holders because when he returned to the darkroom, the process would be based on the different exposure. So different amounts of processing for different exposures. The image, Monolith the Face of Half Dome, was created with only one last glass plate he had in his bag. He had one shot to get it right. He later said of that image, I had been able to realize a desired image, not the way the subject appeared in reality, but how it felt to me and how it must appear in the finished print. In the 1920s, photographers gravitated towards the style of photography known as pictorialism. This was a way to imitate the painters of that era by showing softer tone transition, lower contrast, and softer details. This was many times achieved by using a dedicated soft focus lens. This lens was designed to create a mystical sensation to the photograph by letting the highlights glow in the image instead of sharp detail throughout. Adams experimented with this style for a while, but gravitated towards his own style in front to back sharpness where the images had full depth of field showing in the images. In order to get this kind of success and sharpness, he had to start shooting his images at tiny apertures. Today, a tiny aperture might be f22 or sometimes f29, but Adams in his heyday was shooting images at f64. In fact, he formed a group of famous photographers at the time, notably Imogene Cunningham and Edward Weston was part of it, and they called their alliance Group F64. Group F64 had a manifesto that espoused the concept that photography should be pure photography. In the writings of its manifesto, it said, Pure photography is defined as possessing no qualities of technique, composition, or idea derived from any other art form. 
This meant abandoning pictorialism and creating their own way in landscape photography. In 1941, Adams landed a lucrative contract from the National Park Service to photograph all the national parks. The contract was for 180 days, and the road trip took him all over the United States. He made almost every national park at the time, and only missing the Everglades in Florida. While on this trip in New Mexico, Adams created one of his most famous images, Moonrise, Hernandez, New Mexico. It's black and white image of the moon rising over a little New Mexico town of Hernandez, later to be determined to be shot on October 31st, 1941. Curious that the most famous graveyard photograph of all time was created on Halloween. This is an iconic image created from the road where Adams and his son and his best friend were traveling with him. There are a couple of differing accounts of how the image came to be, but here's Ansel's version of how it happened. It was made after sundown. There was a twilight glow on the distant peaks of the clouds. The average light values of the foreground were placed on the U of the Weston master meter. Apparently the values of the moon in the distant peaks did not lie higher than the A of the meter. Some may consider this photograph a tour de force, but I think of it as a rather normal photograph of a typical New Mexican landscape. Twilight is unfortunately neglected. What may be drab and uninteresting by daylight may assume a magnificent quality in the half-light between sunset and dark. The Moonrise image went on to be a magnificent piece for Ansel Adams, and by far its most valuable. In 1948, a print sold at auction for over $70,000, and that same print sold again in 2006 Using today's money value, that would be over $884,000. Adams experimented with the printmaking of that image and created over 1,300 different hand-printed images from that negative of the moon rising over the little town, and the graveyard lit up just after sunset. It's estimated to be worth over $25 million to the Ansel Adams estate. His images inspired me to become a photographer and gain a deeper knowledge of how the black and white image was produced. His images also are spectacular and can be viewed on occasion in art galleries across the country. Or you can just go to the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite Valley. Yes, the gallery can be found at the same location that the best studio was located many years ago right next to Yosemite Falls. Now, why do I feel like I need to say, now you know the rest of the story? <laughs> Either way, photography inspiration can come from many sources. Find the style that suits you best and figure out how to achieve it. My style has become more of an ultra-sharp rendition of the landscape images. Through the use of photo stacking, I like creating images that are razor-sharp. In fact, so much so, my book is titled Razor Sharp Nature Photography to also encompass my wildlife photography as well. The ebook is full of useful information to guide you to making your images razor sharp. From using the proper shutter speed to the step-by-step -step of a photo stacking and also many other topics related to image sharpness in this book is packed with information and sample images. The ebook is only available on my website at imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T 
razorsharpnaturephotography.com. Go to the digital products page and download your copy of Razor Sharp Nature Photography today. I'll leave a link in the description of this episode, show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nature Photography Podcast. And I appreciate you taking the time to share this podcast with others that are into photography. Until next time, this is your host, Terry Vanderheiden.